This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 at WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday. And this is a show I always look forward to. Uh, our guest in the studio is going to be Dr. Latha Dulipsing. Dr. Dulipsing is the director for the Center for Diabetes and Endocrine uh, Care at St. Francis, and that's part of Trinity Health New England. Uh, and so I'm going to give the phone numbers now. She's going to be on with us in the next segment. But, you know, last week we, again, people start calling in in the last minute of the show. So 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You can also reach me at info at alessimd.com. And I know there are always a lot of questions about diabetes, diabetes care, and we're going to be chatting about that today. Uh, we're into football season, youth sports. We're also into flu season. So many of you uh, may have heard from your employers, your insurance companies, uh, time to start thinking about and going out and getting a flu shot. And October is typically the month uh, when everybody gets these. And it's so important to really protect yourself and your family around you. So we uh, really like to mark that on the calendar uh, so that people are thinking that way. So we've heard a lot in the last week about science and politics. And and this is an interesting topic. The, this all came up over this big hubbub about whether a hurricane was going to hit Alabama. And people make mistakes. I, I wish people would just say, I, I made a mistake. But instead... This got into a whole big deal in terms of the map saying it was going to get to Alabama, wasn't going to get to Alabama. And the crucial problem here was somebody decided that they were going to change science. We're going to change science in order to suit a political agenda. Now, whether the hurricane hits or not is not a big deal. The idea has been that the principle of trying to change science to suit your politics is wrong. It's what they did in Nazi Germany, right? They're going to have a superior race. We're going to change science. We don't change science here. And there has to always be that separation. Now, you're entitled to have an opinion or an argument, and doctors do that all the time, right? We do that at grand rounds every week. Somebody's got one opinion. Somebody's got another opinion. Bring your science and back it up. But that's the way we move ahead. So the debate needs to be based on science. We're being faced with that issue here in the state of Connecticut soon. And that is over vaccination. The latest we're hearing in this, and, and those of you regular listeners to the program know that we stand with the idea that science tells us vaccination is good. It protects the population. You need to try to get to whatever is herd immunity for that disease. Lately, it's been the measles outbreak. 
And the politics of it has been um, a group of uh, conservative Republicans uh, led by a guy named Mike France in eastern Connecticut. And they believe that the government officials, the, the, part, the commissioner of public health should not be speaking out on this issue. Well, that's her job. Right. So Renee Coleman Mitchell is the commissioner of public health. She's a public health expert. She's not a physician. She's a public health expert. Her job is to look at trends in health and to head off a crisis that may affect the people of Connecticut. So apparently on Monday, she is finally going to speak out on this as to whether or not she supports repeal of the vaccine exemption. So there's currently an exemption for people who say it's against their religious beliefs to have their children vaccinated. We have yet to identify a religion that believes that, whether it be Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Catholicism. Sorry, nobody. They've made a big deal about orthopedic, uh, orthopedic, orthodox Jewish people. See, that's what happens when you're on a medical show. Uh, Orthodox uh, people who are of the Jewish faith being against it. You could be against it, but their religion does not dictate that. So the point is, if you want to go to public school, you get vaccinated. If you want to go to private school, you don't have to get vaccinated. The people we're trying to protect here are children who have immune disorders and are vulnerable to this. And that's the idea of getting to herd immunity. So with that, we don't mix science and politics. The idea is that we need to hear from the public health expert and our legislators need to take a stand on it. We'll see what happens. We're still following the story. I mean, this is supposed to happen this week. There's supposed to be a vote uh, this session. Uh, We're anxious to see what comes out of that. Well, you can't. Turn on a TV, a radio, or open a newspaper without hearing the word vaping, right? Something we that was not part of our vernacular when I started this program 12 years ago, that's for sure. And now we have uh, over 450 possible hospitalizations, 380 probable hospitalizations related to vaping. There are six deaths, 11 cases documented in Connecticut where people have been hospitalized due to injuries to their lungs from vaping. The problem here is we haven't quite figured out. Is it from the delivery device itself, the thing that heats up the element so that you could inhale this and get this stuff into your lungs? Or is it the stuff you're putting in your lungs? We don't. We haven't figured that out yet. But I, I thought it was almost funny last week when I mentioned the American Vaping Association. But they have risen up. They're like the NRA now. They've got they've got lobbyists out there. All right. We heard from our president this week who was against vaping and in favor of some restrictions. But somebody from the Vaping Association has gotten him to soften that feeling. Understand what this is about. Okay. It's about vaporizing a substance that's toxic to get it into the lungs. Could be nicotine, could be THC. We just don't know its effects on the lungs and what people are putting in there. And the American Vaping Association has specifically targeted children. 
How ridiculous. How sad is that to target children to to sell your wares? So with that, um, these people ought to be ashamed of themselves. Let's get a feel, let's find out what we should be doing here. And and if you're vaping and you know somebody vaping, just stop. Just stop. Do your best to stop now. Until we figure out if you're really hurting yourself. Um, the last thing, let's talk about this day in medicine. Dr. Luther Hill. This was an interesting fellow who I got to read about last night. So on September 14th, 1902, he became the first American to successfully suture a heart wound in a 13-year-old young man. Dr. Hill was an interesting guy. He is from Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, he went off and actually studied under Joseph Lister in London. Lister, for whom we've named Listerine, was among the first to perform surgery, antiseptic, sterile technique surgery. And so Dr. Hill was summoned to the bedside in 1902 of a young African-American man, young, young boy, 19 years, uh, 13 years old, who had been hemorrhaging and had had a stab wound to the heart. And it was the first time in this country somebody opened up the chest. He opened up the surrounding membranes of the heart, the pericardium, drained blood, identified the wound, and was able to suture it. Uh, and that young man lived uh, beyond that and a productive life. So it was very interesting. What I find most interesting is here's a fellow in 1902 in the heart of Alabama, known for racism. Dr. Hill was white, okay, who performed this surgery and saved the life of an African-American young man at age 13. That's what America is about. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Laith Abdulup Singh. We're going to be talking about diabetes. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today I have the pleasure of being with Dr. Latha Dulipsing. Dr. Dulipsing is an endocrinologist specializing in uh, diabetes and metabolic care, in addition to all of endocrinology. She's at Trinity Health of New England, and she's a director of the Centers uh, for Diabetes and Endocrine Care. Is that right? Did I get that right? It's, this time? It's diabetes and endocrinology. Endocrinology. Center, yeah. the, they keep switching this uh, up on us, Latha. What know. are they doing to us? <laughs> um, but uh, essentially, I really wanted to get you back, and, and it's great to have you back because of diabetes. I mean, the statistics, we were talking a little bit off the air about the statistics around diabetes. Can you just bring everybody up to speed on how many people in this country are affected by diabetes? First of all, I'd like to thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be back. Uh, the incidence and prevalence of diabetes in the United States adds up to close to 30 million people. And if you are just looking locally in Connecticut, we have about 350,000 people in Connecticut with diabetes. Now, that includes all types of diabetes. Both type 1 and type 2, but the commoner type of diabetes is type 2. And um, even though I said um, 30 million people in the United States have diabetes, about a fourth of them don't know that they have the diagnosis yet. They're walking around without knowing. And I guess that's the problem. So let's 
backtrack a little bit and just bring everybody up to speed. The difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So type 1 diabetes is a kind of diabetes where you don't make any insulin at all. And it was usually, you know, uh, discovered uh, in younger individuals, but now you see it more in adults, uh, and it is due to destruction of the pancreas by autoantibodies. Type 2 diabetes, which is the commoner type of diabetes, is uh, uh, more prevalent, and uh, it is due to um, uh, lack of insulin production or the fact that you are making insulin, but it is resistant or you're not just making enough insulin to get those blood sugars under good control. Factors that contribute to type 2 diabetes include obesity, um, sedentary lifestyle, strong family history, age, um, and so on. So uh, when we talk about juvenile diabetes, yes, uh, and I know the, there's a big walk, uh, Joe D'Ambrosio, who's a, a prominent uh, person in this radio station and on the morning show I know is leading the walk for juvenile diabetes. Can you explain juvenile diabetes? Right. So just like my center has been changing names, juvenile diabetes is not called juvenile diabetes anymore. It's called type 1 diabetes because it's not seen as commonly in young children like it used to be. Okay. You now see it in young adults as well or sometimes even in older adults. We better tell the people who are having the walk because they're still calling it the JDRF, right, <laughs> or something, true. okay? But anyhow, all right. So let's look at this in terms of how do we get out in front? I mean you have 30 million people out there and 89 million who, who were probably diabetic and don't know it? Oh, no. 89 million Americans have prediabetes. Prediabetes. Okay. So let's talk about what is prediabetes. So prediabetes is a condition where your blood sugars are high, but not high enough to be diagnosed with diabetes. So you still don't have diabetes at that particular point, but you have, you may be in the path towards developing diabetes if you don't make lifestyle modifications and changes. So let's talk about those numbers because the numbers seem to be getting lower and lower. I mean, it used to be a fasting blood sugar of up to 110 was normal. Uh, when when I yeah. was from, was treating patients for diabetes. Right. And now that's prediabetes, correct? Correct. So for prediabetes, if your fasting blood sugars are anywhere from 100 to 124, you have prediabetes. Or if you have a random blood sugar anywhere from 141 to 199, or if your hemoglobin A1C is anywhere from 5.7% to 6.4%. So these are the three criteria to diagnose prediabetes. What do you do about it? So in other words, that's the key. It sounds to me that that's the key time to catch this because if you don't pay attention to that, it will grow into diabetes, correct? Absolutely. It's not everybody that go into diabetes, but you have a 5 to 15% chance of developing type 2 diabetes if you don't recognize it and make the lifestyle modifications. So to your point, the way you recognize it is to see if you are at risk for prediabetes or diabetes and then to be screened for it, and then make lifestyle modifications. Okay, at risk. Genetics? Uh, genetics, of course. So family history, if you're over the age of 45, if you're overweight, sedentary. For women, if they have polycystic ovarian uh, uh, syndrome or if they've had gestational diabetes, these are the individuals who are at high risk for developing prediabetes and diabetes later on. How close a genetic factor is there? So does it have to be your parents or is it first-degree relatives? Or? Usually first-degree relatives. Okay. Parents. 
And you mentioned age 45. Yes. Why age 45? Uh, there's, you, you know, as you get older, there's a change in your metabolism and you tend to have an impairment in your glucose tolerance. So one of the things we're constantly reading about, and actually I, I, it's, it's kind of a big topic, but is children, right? Because that figure seems to be dropping from the standpoint of we're seeing more and more children with type 2 diabetes, correct? Un yes, and that's very true. And unfortunately, that's because of our prevalence of obesity in the United States. Over 60% of America is overweight and about 30% are actually obese. And so we are tending to see type 2 diabetes in a younger and younger population. And that's why you don't call it juvenile diabetes anymore, because I've seen children like in adolescents, 12 and 13, with type 2 diabetes. That young? Yes. Wow. Um, so with that, we're going to get back to that a little bit because this is important is talking about type 2 diabetes and really how to get out in front of this problem. Because guess what? This problem is going to cost us all money, right? We're talking about insurance for everybody, Medicare for everybody, whatever it is, it's going to cost us all money unless we get out in front of these problems. So today we're talking with Dr. Latha Dulip Singh about diabetes and how do we get out in front of the problem before it keeps growing. The telephone numbers here are 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. I also want to remind everybody that you can get us on the podcast if you just go to uh, iTunes or any of the podcast vendors, put in Healthy Rounds, and all our shows are chronicled on there. So if you're only getting bits and pieces of today on your way to the store to do shopping or on your way to the golf course, um, you can get the whole show by going to the podcast. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Latha Dulopsing. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and my guest today is Dr. Latha Dulopsing. She is director for the Center for Diabetes and Endocrinology at St. Francis Hospital and the uh, Trinity Health of New England. To reach her, the phone number is 860-714-4402. Latha, right before the break, we're talking a little bit about pre-diabetes and how to get out in front of diabetes. And so can you do that? So if someone is identified early on as being pre-diabetic, running a fasting blood sugar, say 120, what could be done for that person to avoid the eventuality of becoming diabetic? So like we talked before, not everybody with pre-diabetes go on to developing diabetes. So once you're di diagnosed with pre-diabetes, if you make lifestyle modifications, studies have shown that simple lifestyle modifications can decrease your incidence of developing diabetes by about 58%. And when I say lifestyle modifications, it means weight loss of about 5 to 7%, which means you modify the way you eat and you exercise on a regular basis. The exercise has got to be at least about 150 minutes a week, which is about 30 minutes every day or an hour every other day. Is that how some of these other things are are other ways of accomplishing that we've we've talked to so-called metabolic surgeons right weight loss surgery has become very popular 
Yes. In terms of using the gastric sleeve uh, is the popular way. And people do it now to avoid diabetes. Are they truly, is there some factor that they're eliminating by stapling off that part of their stomach that avoids diabetes? It's not that. It's just the weight loss that you see and some hormonal changes that occur after the surgery, which does help get rid of diabetes if you already had it. But again, if you don't make lifestyle modifications after the surgery, you're still going to gain all that weight back and develop diabetes again. It. So I think what you're saying is there really isn't an advantage to having the surgery unless you're committed. So if you didn't do the surgery, but you were committed to losing the weight, exercising, uh, and changing your lifestyle, that would be just as effective as having this gastric surgery. Uh, no, actually, I'd like to say that the surgery is an important tool, okay. a absolutely important tool. But there are, you know, like cert- criteria for the surgery. Sure. So if your body mass index is over 35 and you, you, you should, you know, consider the surgery if you're unable to lose weight. If you've tried other ways and unable to lose weight, that's a way to go. But if your body mass index is less than 35 and you have a comorbid illness, that's also a way to consider. But again, surgery, just like medications, is a tool towards weight loss. You need to look at behavior modifications and the whole picture and not just think there's a quick fix. There is no one simple diet. There is no one simple medication or one simple surgery that's going to fix it. So people who have lost weight, and I'm I'm thinking of uh, one of the fellows who works here with me, Matt. He's been on... Uh, a program, the Compass Weight Loss, like many of these weight loss, uh, Rob Nevins or whatever, where if you don't use special food, no special, you just use regular food. Uh, and actually for the first six weeks, they don't exercise. They just diet, uh, I guess. And But with their own food and they have cheat days and things like that. Is that how he's lost? I mean, he's lost a phenomenal amount of weight uh, and, and really gotten control of things. And as much as people are saying it's easy, it's not that easy. But is that what it is? It's just purely diet? So there is a lot to do with weight loss. When you, you know, weight loss does help not just diabetes, but a lot of other medical comorbidities like high blood pressure and cholesterol and so on. But weight loss, again, it depends on the way you do it. If you don't change your habits and just lose, say, 100 pounds in six months because of some intensive therapy, it's going to come back if you change your lifestyle six months later. So you've got to do steps that change the way you eat, the portion control and exercise. So it's got to be over a period of time. And but there are some great weight loss programs which have been very successful. Let's talk about treatment. So now when we're treating diabetes, they're all new treatments. I mean, now to see someone with a, an insulin pump is not a rarity. I mean, we see this all the time now. Um, How has that all evolved? How do these pumps work? So diabetes technology has come such a long way. So pumps are a continuous way of delivering insulin. So what it does is it has a reservoir which contains insulin and it delivers the insulin over a two to three day period. Now the pumps have uh, communications with sensing devices that actually senses your blood sugars as well and are able to turn off if your blood sugars are low, and there are some pumps which can actually give you a slightly higher dose of insulin if your blood sugars are high. 
based on the sensing device. So technology has evolved so much for diabetes and helped with the management of care both for type 1 and for type 2 diabetes. So insulin pumps used to be only used for type 1. In the past, not anymore. More and more people are on insulin for type 2 diabetes. And before, we always used oral agents, yes. oral hypoglycemic agents. Why is that? Is it just a more effective treatment? No, you always start with oral medications for individuals with type 2 diabetes. You treat them, and then what happens is eventually your pancreas kind of succumb to the stress of not making any insulin at all, and then you become what's known as insulin-requiring type 2 diabetes. Are, are often people on more than one medication? Usually you can go up to three medications, oral medications, and then that's when you start considering starting them on insulin. A lot of times, you know, providers manage it very differently. You start with one dose of insulin and slowly build it up, call the basal bolus regimen, or just, you know, start altogether with insulin with three or four shots a day. A lot of the new medications we're seeing on TV, right, Genuvia or whatever, is there something different about them that makes them Special? So there are about 14 classes of diabetes medications that have been approved for the treatment of diabetes. And all of them work in different pathways. So some of them work at the level of the liver, the pancreas, the kidneys. So, the, you know, in the past, it was the pathophysiology of diabetes was very simple and it was thought there was a, just a three-way process. Now, there are several organs in our body that interfere with the sugar regulation. So all these medications tend to be working in different pathways. So there is a way to combine and have a synergistic effect when you use different medications. Let's talk a little bit about the complications of diabetes because sometimes we don't, and I think the number is about 10%. It used to be about 10% of the patients don't know they're diabetic until they have a complication. At least from a neurologic standpoint, um, can we talk about some of the complications and some of the more common complications of diabetes and not getting out in front of this? So there are something uh, complications called microvascular complications, and you have macrovascular complications. So the microvascular complications are to your eyes, your feet, and your kidneys. The macrovascular complications are to your heart and your brain. So those are the commonest complications. People with diabetes tend to have damage to their eyes, which is very silent until you lose your sight or have an impairment in vision. Same thing with the kidneys. Most of these complications are silent. So when you say the microvascular, so to your feet, we're talking about feet ulcers and things such as that. It starts with damage to your nerves called neuropathy right. and then leads to that. But one of the the features, it used to be we thought it was direct deposition of sugar into the nerve, but that's not the case. It's Now it's really become more of a vascular problem. Correct. So with that, how do you avoid those things? Is it really, because not everybody gets it, right? Some people just get kidney disease. Some people just, it affects their eyes. How do we know? Do we have any idea of knowing who it's going to affect? Is that part of the genetic traits? Unfortunately, we don't know who it's going to affect, but we do know that once you're diagnosed with diabetes, if you maintain good control of your blood sugars, you can prevent these complications or delay them. I want to touch more on that. We're going to take a short break, and then we're back with my guest, Dr. Latha Dulip Singh, and we're chatting about diabetes and the complications of diabetes. We're also going to talk about the future and the future treatments 
for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we're entering our last segment here, uh, chatting with Dr. Latha Dulipsing about diabetes. And Latha, let's talk a little bit uh, about, we've talked about lifestyle modification, and um, there are a lot of different programs out there, and I know uh, at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, you have a program. Can you talk a little bit about what's involved in the program for people who want to get involved and make some changes? So we have a couple of programs. We have a pre-diabetes and a diabetes prevention program, uh, and we also have a weight loss management program. Uh, with the uh, pre-diabetes program, again, we talk a lot about how you modify your diet and add exercise um, and uh, healthy living. And as far as the weight loss program, it's, again, a four-pronged approach. You start with uh, diet modifications, behavior modifications, uh, exercise, and medication slash uh, surgical options. So somebody signs up, how long is the program for, or is it a fixed amount of time and regular so, sessions? Uh, great question. So the pre-diabetes program is over a six-month period. We uh, have two-hour sessions because it's you know ongoing, and it's a lot about uh, uh, teaching them how to modify their diet uh, and um, uh, exercise status. And as far as the obesity management program, what we do is we start with an introduction of uh, uh, two hours, which includes a provider and a nutritionist, and then it becomes individual appointments thereafter. And they meet either monthly or every couple of months, depending on what their time is, frame is. Is the phone number the same, the, the one I gave before yes, for the is. program? The yes. 860-714-4402. If you're listening to this program and you want to make a change and you feel that you are prone or already have diabetes, um, call that number and, and, and take a look at that. We talked a little bit about young people because obviously that's the future. That's the next wave of where we're going to get hit with the problem. Are we making inroads? We've talked about school diet, right? It's harder to get junk food. It's harder to buy soda and things with sugar. Is that making a difference? I'm sure in the long run it will make a difference because that's where you start, uh, making it difficult for people to have access to such unhealthy foods. And also, you know, a lot of um, uh, lifestyle is because of the socioeconomic status and, you know, being able to buy uh, fast food, which is a lot of calories, but a lot cheaper. So that also contributes. And, you know, we need to make sure that we have more awareness, uh, more access to people to get fresh foods and farmers markets. Uh, and in fact, St. Francis has so many... Um, uh, a community outreach programs for farmers markets for people to be able to get fresh foods and not, you know, have fast food. Are one of the problems preparing fresh foods? Uh, because people are always running between jobs and things such as that. Do you think that's one of the issues? I'm sure it contributes at some level, you know, time management with you're trying to juggle so many things. But yes, but um, prepared foods have just so much of preservatives and sodium and just things that are unhealthy for you. Well, because when you watch people who are morbidly obese, like when you look at a show like My 600-Pound Life, right? That's that's almost a job to try and get that many calories in every day. And uh, I don't 
I guess I don't know the answer to that. It, you know, do we start restricting it or how do we get out in front? We try to restrict soda. We're trying to tell people what to eat now. How sad is that, that we have to tell people how to live longer? Um, but um, I'm hoping we get uh, control of it. And I think programs like yours are really going to be the answer. So what's the next big thing coming down from the standpoint of diabetes? Um, is it a treatment? What What's the next thing we really need to know about, say, in the next 10 or 20 years? I think in the next few years, we should have what's known as uh, artificial pancreas. Like right now, we have pump technology, uh, which uh, speaks to the sensor technology, which monitors your blood sugar. Uh, and, um, you know, you you want to get to the next stage, which is where it takes over completely, where the pl- pump is either implanted and similar to an artificial pancreas. So that's one way. Uh, the other way would also be, you know, more information on islet cell transfer, which will help individuals with type 1 diabetes where you are transplanting islet cells and you know your uh, your own body starts making insulin so you don't require any more insulin treatment after that so there are uh, and, and of course you know we have medications um, like i said we already have 14 classes there are more new medications down the pipeline people are working at different pathways um, to control diabetes are these usually expensive medications? Unfortunately, when these medications come out, most of them are very prohibitively expensive. So what? So do you find yourself using kind of the basics? You always start with the basics because of the science and sure. uh, the fact that we know that it works. And then you move on based on people's needs. It's individualized. Do you have a hard time getting insurance companies to pay for it? Some of the medications you require what's known as pre-authorization or you need to make a case to get the medication. It should be available, and that's coming back to your science and politics. Yeah, because you almost need a whole department in your office just taking care of pre-authorizations um, that everybody does. Um, getting back to islet cell transplant, or you said the word transfer. Is it a transplant? or, or ha- it's, it's, it's a transplant, but you're transferring it intravenously. Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, it's okay. So, so does it have to be a certain tissue type? It's usually islet cells that you take and take them from where? From either a family member. Uh, I, I think it's been in in, uh, in cadavers uh, in the past. I, I'm not. So you could wait. So again, with organ donation, you could donate your islet cells. Again, I I need to know more about it. I'm not it's familiar amazing. with it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, because I think. Uh, you know, and again, we're talking about things in the future. Okay, so um, there are, we always read about one or two cases where they're trying these things, um, but you know that could be tremendous. Yes. But unfortunately, I'm afraid people are going to say that's an excuse for not doing the lifestyle things. Right. Well, I'll just get my stomach stapled, or I'll, I'll just go get an islet cell transplant. Um, so it it makes it a little bit harder. Um, Getting control of complications from this, and and we've talked a little bit about stroke, heart attack. Again, just treating the actual primary problem, is that is that what we're better off doing? Again, with diabetes, it's not just about controlling the sugars, but you also need to control your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your diet, exercise. So it's not just getting your blood sugars under good control. Um, and if you do all of these your chance of developing the complications is much smaller. Is it harder to get, is it 
hard to get an insulin pump if somebody's thinking of it or are they hard to get expensive to get or how does that all work they are expensive but you need to see uh you know who qualifies to get the insulin pump you need to be on at least three or four shots of insulin to get the insulin pump you don't go directly from oral medications onto an insulin pump okay so that's where so it's again it's individualized so you start with your basic treatment and you build it up how about an athlete? Unless you're a little kid yeah. who's diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. In most cases, then, you know, you start with insulin and then quickly progress onto the pump. We see a lot more athletes with insulin pumps yes. now. Is that because they're on three or four injections or because their blood sugars vary so much due to sports? Again, it may have started because they were on several doses of insulin and then they're on the pump, but then it becomes very convenient when you're on the pump because it's so much easier to control, especially with their kind of lifestyle. Wow. It, Liv, it's been great having you back on. Uh, you know, every year when we get you on here, we just find out more and more uh, really about the progress being made in, in the treatment of diabetes. Um, thank you for all you do and the folks over at uh, the Center for Diabetes and Endocrinology. If you'd like to make an appointment with Dr. Dulip Singh, the phone number is 860-714-4402. Lather, thanks again. Thank you, Ann. And she has a great staff over there who uh, take care of everything um, when you have a problem. Uh, and it's just uh, the feedback has been great from the patients who I've seen who have been there. Next week uh, on Healthy Rounds, we're going to be talking about something we've not talked about on this program before, and that is sickle cell disease. The month of September is Sickle Cell Awareness Month, and I really wanted to get someone on. So we're going to have a guest from the University of Connecticut coming on to talk about sickle cell disease. Many thanks to our studio producers. Mike Olko has been on the board. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. If you want to get the Healthy Rounds podcast, you could do that from iTunes. Next up on WT is going to be Garden Talk with Len. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.